I'd like to welcome all of our listeners once again to the London Lyceum. I am your host, Jordan Stefaniak, alongside Brandon Askew, your other co-host. And we are the podcast that hopes to encourage you to think deeply and clearly about theological issues, about your life in general, and about all things related to God. And today we want to circle back to defining the analytic theology that we've uh, invested a lot of time into and a lot of interest in. So we received several questions after our initial introduction episode, and we wanted to field some of those questions to kind of answer it, because I think um, the questions are great questions, and it's partly just the fact that analytic theology is a little bit newer and sometimes more complicated, so people aren't as familiar with it. But at the same time, I think that was our second episode, and we probably weren't as clear or as precise or as helpful as we could have been or should have been. So what we want to do here is circle back on that. What is analytic theology? And then answer some questions or potentially objections to it. And along the lines of analytic theology and answering those questions, we do want to mention we would love for any feedback that you offer. So one feedback I heard was put in the show notes your your ideas for books, recommendations. And so I started to do that. Now, if you go back to your old episodes, you will see these notes and these and these links to different books. So if you have a suggestion, if you have an idea, send it to us. I've changed the introduction for some of the upcoming episodes, including this one, because of some feedback. Let us know how you think it, what you think about it. If you like it, if you don't like it, maybe I'll put it back. The old one, I'm not really sure. Somebody said it sounded like NPR, but it put him to sleep. So Who said that? Uh, my friend David Little, so he just got a shout out if, if he's listening. I have uh, no idea. But the point is, we like your feedback. Keep giving it to us. That's why we're doing this episode. So, oh, are you, you going to tell everybody this is our second time doing this? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, you're not getting on board that easy. <laughs> so I made, obviously, a major blunder in recording improperly the first episode. I don't know what I did with our mixer. I accidentally messed some lever or something up. And as soon as I listened to it after we recorded it, which I thought we crushed it, my heart I, sank. I just want to say I studied really hard and I thought <laughs> I did really well in that episode. So for every mistake I make tonight, it's your fault because I don't feel as prepared tonight. But that's all right. Well, you know, I'm in a much lighter, better mood just because the Cardinals just won game four like two minutes ago. Um, yesterday was a really bad sports day for me. So today's was, a good day. Yeah. What happened yesterday? Oh man, my Jags, Minshew yeah. mania, not, not coming through in the clutch. Lost to my Panthers. All right. Nobody wants to hear about me. <laughs> All right. So analytic theology, let's define it again. Analytic theology is the commitment to employ the tools of analytic philosophy in our theolo- theologizing. It's, it's really not any more complicated than that. In, here, listen to Oliver Crisp. This is what he says about it. Analytic theology will prize intellectual virtues like clarity, parsimony of expression, and argumentative rigor. So essentially, again, analytic theology is just trying to use the tools of philosophy to encourage and to move forward the theological discussion. So it's using uh, different areas of philosophy like the philosophy of language, the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of action, the philosophy of science, the philosophy of time, All these things, they're bringing these to bear on our understanding of the biblical text so that we can have a clear, precise, and more robust understanding of what's going on there. So, for example, J.T. Turner, in a recent book on the resurrection of the dead, 
he uses the philosophy of time to make sense of the resurrection. That's, in a nutshell, what analytic theology is really trying to do. It's just trying to be clear, precise, and use philosophy to make sense of theology. Is that yeah, that I mean, I think that's a, that's a fair summary. Okay. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more once we get into something a little bit later about um, exactly what, what we mean when we say like tools of analytic philosophy and what, what analytic argumentation actually looks like. But we'll, we'll get to that um, a little bit later on in this episode. So Yeah, and I think Michael Ray gives four things that analytic theology does that's helpful. So he says analytic theology, number one, has positions and conclusions that can be formalized and logically manipulated in sentences. That may sound complex, but all it's saying is analytic theology puts their conclusions and their argument in very clear like sentence form. So point one is the belief that the resurrection requires X or whatever it may be. And then point two, it's this so that you can logically manipulate those things. And number two, it avoids substantive use of metaphor. So it's not saying metaphor is bad. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, it's just avoiding it because metaphor can sometimes be unclear. And going along with that, number three, it prioritizes precision, clarity, and logical coherence, which is what the crisp quote kind of said. And that's just, we want to be precise. We want to be clear. We want to be logical. And we want to present a coherent case. And number four, it works with well-understood concepts as much as possible. So again, that just bundles back into the clarity thing. It's not trying to be vague. It's not trying to use words or things that are not uh, understood by most people. It's going to use clear, precise phrasing and verbiage so that everybody can understand it and we can move forward with that. You may think at this point, analytic theology, is that just trying to remove mystery? No, it's just trying to not make an excuse for sloppy thinking. So while mystery may be apt for robustly positive accounts of the divine, that, that's fine. That's totally good. That's that's right. You, there are certain things about God that we are mysterious. We don't have a robust, positive account of it. But it, it's insufficient to use mystery to defend against negative charges of incoherence and contradiction. You have to use logical, rigorous arguments to, to say that, no, Christianity is not incoherent. Tim Paul says mature thinking requires philosophical analysis. If you want to defend the faith, you have to use the tools of analytic theology. Honestly, that's what I think. Yeah. No, I think that's good. Um, maybe now we can transition to uh, more of the practical side of analytic theology. So just for the person in the pew, um, why does analytic theology matter? So like, is this something that you care about or is this something that's just for the academics that's just too top shelf or something that, you know, maybe – yeah, the person in the pew should just totally ignore altogether. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I got a comment about that one. Somebody said, um, I could have done with that without that episode. You know, it was over my head. So is it really over your head or is it really something that you can do without or is it something you should actually care about? I mean, I think everybody should care about it. Not everybody's going to be able to do analytic theology at the level that it can be done in the academic world, but everybody can do some well, form. And, and I don't even think doing it is maybe maybe for you it's just reading it. Yeah, that's know, because fair. because reading analytic theology has a lot of advantages too. And we're gonna we're gonna get into that a little bit later. But I just wanted I wanted to throw that in. Sorry. Yeah. So again, everyone does theology. It's just a matter of whether you're doing good theology or not. And analytic theology is a method and tool that encourages 
good theology. And the church has been doing it for two millennia. You look at the Council of Nicaea. They get there and they hammer out precise definitions. Analytic theology, that's what it is. And Tom McCall, I mean, he, he says this really well in his book, An Invitation to Analytic Theology. It's in the show notes. Go get it. It's cheap. It's like 15 bucks. It's short too. He says, the concentrated attention required to read, understand, and develop very technical analytic ar arguments may be conducive to the kinds of intellectual virtues and habits of mind that are spiritually beneficial. And I'd make that even harder. It's, it's not just maybe. It, it's definitely conducive to the intellectual virtues and habits of mind that are spiritually beneficial. It's basically a mode of meditation and prayer going back and forth, hammering out and understanding the truth that is found in God's word. Yeah. So this, you know, you mentioned intellectual virtues in that quote from McCall. So that um, brings me to this article that I want to uh, direct your attention to. This is from uh, William Wood. This is in the journal of uh, analytic theology. And the name of this is uh, analytic theology as a way of life. We'll put information about this in the show notes as well. This is a good uh, inter introductory article um, about what analytic theology is, which hopefully you've got a little bit of a grasp on that, but it's just about a 15 page article. And what he does here is he gives four intellectual virtues um, that are, are fostered by practicing um, analytic theology. So I'll just give those four to you here. And maybe Jordan will want to uh, expand on, on the list here. But the first one that he lists is attention. So he says, this is William Wood. He's at uh, Oxford. So just so you can kind of get an idea of, of who he is. Smart um, guy, obviously. And Oh, and by the way, the uh, Journal of Analytic Theology is open access. I'm, it, no, it is. Uh, I, are all of them? Or is it? Yeah, Journal of Analytic Theology is open access. All volumes? Okay. So if you jump on there, you can look at any of them for free. Yeah, so, so I just pulled this online. Um, but you know, the first virtue that he mentioned is, is attention. He says, consider the first uh, consider first the concentrated attention required to read, understand and develop very technical analytic arguments. So you know, the, this is a pretty basic point, but it's something that I think that we should pause and really think about is, you know, these kinds of arguments are not something that you're just going to kind of breeze through. And, you know, you can, you know, maybe read the first sentence out of a paragraph and the last sentence. And I've got the idea you have to kind of slowly walk through these step by step so you can understand. So that, that builds up your attention span. And that's something that in our age of, you know, busyness, most of us have terrible attention spans. I know I'm guilty of that. I'll be praying. And then, you know, the next thing I know, I'm thinking about an appointment I have tomorrow or a bill that's due or a school assignment. And, and my attention is totally gone to something else. So this, this, uh, an increased attention span is something that can be fostered. Um, by reading and practicing uh, analytic theology. So that's the first one. The second virtue that he lists is transparency. So what he's getting at here is argumentative transparency. So you're removing all of the uh, things that could uh, cloud what exactly you're trying to communicate. You're being um, explicit in your claim. So this is what he says. He says, consider the stereotypical form of analytic argumentation. This is how he summarizes it. Explicit propositional claims clearly laid out as stepwise arguments often presented in deductive form. So what he means by deductive form there is that in, in the argument, if the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. This isn't um, we're not just arguing about probabilities that it, it may be true when a deductive argument is done well. And if the and if the actual each individual premise is true, then the conclusion must follow from that. OK. So that's what he means by deductives. And that's laid out in a step-by-step -step argument. Now, 
the reason that that's a good thing is there's it really what you're trying to do is remove all the wiggle room and remove um, hidden assumptions. You're trying to really put everything out there on the table. And that's what he means by being uh, transparent. So, you know, it, the attitude behind it is, you know, if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong in ways that I myself cannot see. Please help me see them. So that's that's the the payoff for being as transparent as possible. Um, so that's the second one. The third virtue that he mentions is uh, imaginative identification with one's opponents. And I think this is something if you spend enough time on social media and Twitter, this is something we could all use a dose of is to be able to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. OK, lots of times it seems like arguments just devolve into, well, I just cannot understand how you can think that way or how you came to that conclusion. Well, when you're doing this, if you want to make your argument as strong as possible, then you're going to need to identify with the other side because you want to be able to not only present things as clearly as you can, but you want to be able to um, make your argument um, as robust as possible. So if you know every bit of ammunition that the other side has, you can better formulate your argument. Um, this is another quote from, from Wood. He says, um, when one can internalize and inhabit the voices of one's critics, the fixed prideful self becomes unstable. So this is, I mean, again, something that we could all use a dose of is this helps to remove pride. Um, you know, my argument is not the greatest thing that has, you know, ever been created. Other people have good reasons for believing what they believe. Now, if they believe A and I believe not A, then we're not going to both be right. But that doesn't mean that, you know, this person is just not thinking or, you know, they're dumb because they disagree with me. Um, so putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is, I mean, it's just necessary if you're going to do any kind of uh, analytic philosophy or theology. And the last one he says is, um, this is the last virtue from Wood, passively waiting for insight. So he talks about how um, philosophers can be working over a problem in their head and then all of a sudden they have this aha moment. But, you know, one thing that he points out in this article um, is that that aha moment doesn't come usually 30 seconds you know, after you think about it. Sometimes it's days, weeks, you know, um, after you, you're turning these arguments over and over, you know, in your mind. You know, he says it in here, that's hard work. Um, but it's 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 something that we want to cultivate as Christians, because, you know, part of being a Christian is is being in a waiting stance, right? We're waiting on God. We're waiting on, on Christ to return. Like this, this is not um, instant gratification. You know, part of the Christian life is to lead a life of, you know, the, the path to glory is suffering. That's the path that Christ took. That's the path that, that Christ followers will take. So, you know, the idea that we, we're going to have everything and have it now um, is something that we need to get over as Christians and having to do, you know, rigorous thought and um, doing analytic theology is something that can make us, you know, understand that, you know, we do have to just wait for that aha moment sometimes. Um, so I thought those were four um, good virtues that he brought up. And this is just a good article. So, like I said, we're going to put this in the show notes. And um, again, this is Journal of Analytic Theology. He talks about he uses a couple examples from church history and Anselm and uh, Aquinas. But like I said, it's only about 15 pages, so it's, it's worth your time. Yeah, and I, really, when you think about it, I think those four virtues are good for anyone and anything and not just theology. So if, if our analytic theology is developing these virtues, 
that is a great reason to pursue it and to become familiar with it, to practice it. Uh, I mean, just looking at transparency, how many times have we been unwilling to actually expose ourselves to disagreement by putting forward our argument in almost a very vulnerable position by being very honest and clear about where we're at and showing the costs that are associated with our view. That's only going to make us that much better. And identification. I mean, pick, pick your, pick your battle, whatever it may be, whatever you get most annoyed about. If, if it's social justice, if it's the Trinity, if it's uh, eternal functional subordinationism, whatever it is that bothers you, put yourself in the other person's shoes. I guarantee you, if you do that, you will better understand their position because it's not as if every single person who disagrees with you is a lunatic. Right. And, it, and if you better understand their position, and I think I said this, but I just want to say it again, it makes your argument better because you're not arguing against the other side's like worst argument. Like you, mm-hmm. you want to understand their best argument. And if you can defeat their best argument, that give, I mean, that puts you in a better place. Anybody can go out and find a, a, a terrible argument and just knock that down. That I mean, that's that's not red really a, meat for the yeah, crowd. That's Big not deal. accomplishing much. And if you don't take the time to actually identify with your opponent by by reading them closely, you run the risk of mis, um, of, of misrepresenting what it is, what it is that they're actually arguing. You don't want to do that because once you do that, then I mean, you have no credibility. Yeah. So again, I mean, I think these virtues are ones that anyone should want, even if you're skeptical of analytic theology, if it's, if it's producing virtues like this, it can't be that bad. If you're producing these things, that's a good thing. And I think William Wood says this about humility in that article. He says to make a good analytic argument is to make that argument maximally easy for intellectual opponents to criticize or refute. That is going to produce humility in you because you're going to realize maybe you don't change your mind on the, the ultimate conclusion, but you realize some of your arguments actually aren't as good as you thought because that is a reality that we all are going to encounter. And if you think that that's never going to happen to you, then you've probably got another thing coming. So another thing that he said in this article, he says, this is a direct quote um, because this is where he's kind of pushing back against, um, you know, the idea that um, this is a spiritually sterile thing. It's cold, you know, and, the, the, well, I'll get to the direct quote in a minute, but but he really hammers home this point about this is a truth-seeking enterprise, right? That that our aim is to uncover truth, and if if God is the God of all truth, then this is a God-honoring thing for us to be doing, right? But here's here's the quote that I wanted to highlight. He says the task of the intellectual, Christian or otherwise, analytic theologian or other or otherwise, is to see things as they are rather than as we want them to be, and I mean that. Sounds pretty simple, but really, I mean, let, I, I just think about the way some of us interact with each other, especially online. It's very, it's very in, based in emotions. And I, again, emotions are not bad. Experiences are not bad. Yeah, it's but, hilarious to me. The people who are complaining about other people making emotional responses are responding in emotional responses. Right. So, so, you know, when our aim is to uncover truth and our aim is to actually see the world the way it is and not just forming our own world and our own mind the way we want it to be, uh, we're, we're, you're not going to find truth that way. It's just not going to happen. Um, of course, and then that just gets into different theories of truth. And all yeah. That stuff, but no. we don't have time to go into all that. But <laughs> anyhow, 
Anyhow, I, I won't chase that rabbit anymore. Analytic theology is supremely useful. I mean, just think about preaching. I mean, analytic theology provides those habits of mind and thought that your parishioners need to understand and digest your preaching. Foggy preaching helps nobody. Clear and ordered preaching helps everyone. That doesn't mean you can't like tell a story or make it a narrative style preaching. It just means that you're clear and precise in what you're saying. And in, in the way you're presenting it, you actually understand your material. And of course, it provides clarity for apologetics and defending the faith because you understand why different doctrines are coherent and not incoherent. That's a big thing in analytic theology is having coherent arguments and articulations of the faith. Well, and it also helps you, you know, I, I'm just thinking about, this is definitely a rabbit, but like, <laughs> like, like, you know, your prosperity TV preachers, like, you know, they make a lot of claims, but like, what, if you really take the time to like examine their claims against what the scriptures say, then you really realize they don't stack up. But if you just get caught up into this, oh, well, he says that and that sounds really good, you know, but you have to actually think, what is it they're saying? What is their claim? What is it that scripture is claiming? If those two things don't match up, then we've got to, we, he's gone wrong somewhere. And you, you've got to be able to figure out where he went. But if you're just refusing to engage your mind on these things at all, I mean, and we're supposed to, you know, love God with all our minds. I and mean, that's, a, that's a command in scripture. Um, and, and everything is just feelings based. That's how you get caught up into these weird movements. I don't know how, to put it, <laughs> but I mean, and again, we're not saying feelings are bad in and of themselves. It's just when that is being the lens that we view our theology through, we're probably going to have issues. I mean, if, okay, and, and this, I'm using extremes here just to try to prove the point, but if, if, if you asked most people in the church today, do we have a bigger problem of thinking too much in the church, or do we have a bigger problem of um, just wild emotionalism? and um, anti-intellectualism. I think it's definitely the latter that we have. A yeah. And I, I think that's, that's definitely true. Yeah. So, and, and that's what this, this kind of, that's what analytic theology can help push back against. Not that it has all the answers and it's the be all end all or anything like that, but, but it's a way for us to step back and think, man, maybe I really do need to engage my mind in a different way and on a different level than I've been doing. Because I'm just not thinking as sharply about these very important topics. I mean, this is not stuff for us to be flipping about. Um, these are quite literally, you know, life and death and eternal matters. So I mean, it's something we should take seriously. Yeah. So does someone actually need to know that they're doing analytic theology to be doing it? I've heard that. Well, yes and no. I mean, think to yourself, do you stumble into doing algebra? Do you stumble into producing some major symphony or do you even stumble into grilling a world famous steak? <laughs> I, I think no on all accounts, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Someone theoretically could do that. So yeah, you could be doing good analytic theology without knowing it very, very well could be. It's just unlikely. I think. Yeah. What, what do you think is the, uh, so we got a question about, the maybe the similarity or the difference between scholasticism and, and analytic theology. So scholasticism, whether that be uh, medieval or post-Reformation, um, what, what would you say is, is the difference between those two? Yeah, so scholasticism, remember, that's the, the medieval practice of question and answer uh, regarding theological disputations. So 
I would have to say Tom McCall's nails this right on the head. He says the rebirth of analytic theology may be thought of as, as scholasticism redivivus. I think I said that right. Yes. Uh, so. so basically it's scholasticism 2.0 in a way. It's not really all that different. It's really pretty much the same method as scholastic theology where you're going through and using philosophy to analyze arguments and be very, very clear and to demolish uh, disagreements and objections. You're highlighting objections saying, is this objection true? No. Here's why. One, two, three. Is this objection true? No. Here's why. One, two, three. It's the same mode of thinking. And what fascinates me about this is that many in the Reformed camp are skeptical of analytic theology, despite the fact that so many of those same guys are in love with scholasticism. And you know what that shows me? It shows me that you aren't reading analytic theology. You haven't done your homework. Now, I know that sounds sharp. I know that sounds frank. But that's, angry, that's just the fact. And yeah, it, it annoys me. You should be in a good mood after baseball. I should be. I And I am. But when, when my reformed brother, that's my camp. When my camp is going out there and, and making bad arguments, that frustrates me because that's going to make us look bad. When you make bad arguments, you look bad because the other people will see it and realize that's a bad argument, bro. You don't know what you're talking about. So that's what you're, you're making reform thinkers look like fools when it comes to philosophy and analytic theology because you don't even realize that it is scholasticism 2.0. Yeah, yeah, and we got a similar question to that. Um, what do you, what would you say is the difference between analytic theology and systematic theology? Yeah, and again, I I've got to go with another quote. William Abraham, he I think he's still at Southern Methodist University down in Texas. He says analytic theology is systematic, attuned to the skills, resources, virtues, and virtues of analytic theology or analytic philosophy. Excuse me. So again, the point is that systematic theology has by and large ignored the resources of philosophy. And what analytic theology wants to do is say, we've got a wonderful treasure chest right here full of resources for investigating theology, and we want to use them. So systematic, depending on who you're reading, could potentially be good with history. It might not. But oftentimes, if you read current, I guess, 20th and 21st century systematic theology, there is no philosophy. It is ignorant of that. And that is a great tool. It's not that it's the end all be all tool, but it is a useful tool that we should not neglect in our theologizing. So I think that's probably the primary difference. Yeah. So um, we were going to talk a little bit about metaphor here, but I think you kind of touched on that earlier. So we'll, we'll go ahead. and move. Yeah. Just again, analytic theology doesn't deny metaphor. It just says that we don't want to use them for the sake of clarity. So, Use metaphor all you want in other things. That's fine. Uh, just what we're trying to do is be clear. So we're just sidelining those tools because we want to be clear. Yeah. So we wanted to give you guys a list. Um, you know, as I'm sure you're wondering, maybe give me some names of people that maybe I've, I've heard of who are uh, representative examples of, of analytic theology. So we have, and Jordan divided this list up into Orthodox and more unorthodox. Yeah. So if you have beef with how he's divided this up, take that up with him. And, yeah, so, it's it's there. It's not a hard line. I just kind of really there's a hard line here. That's, there that's there is a hard line. Too. There's no. And let me be clear: my Orthodox unorthodox is more related to classical theology. So if you deny classical theism, you may still be Orthodox nah, in many ways. Now, man. Don't walk 
<laughs> All right. So um, the orthodox list that we have, and we'll just run through these. Um, Timothy Paul, Greg Welty, JT Turner, um, Oliver Crisp, William Abraham, Tom McCall. A lot of these people are people that we've quoted already uh, in, in this episode. Brian Leftow and Ross Inman, two of those. Welty and Inman are at Southeastern. Yeah, and we hope to have most of these. I'd love to have every single one of those guys on the podcast at some point. So who knows? We'll see what we can do. Yeah. And uh, Jordan's list of, of heretics here. Oh, my are, gosh. It's um, unorthodox or less classical. Not, it doesn't say heretic. It says more unorthodox. <laughs> His list there. Uh, and these are actually probably the more well-known names, I would say. Um, William Hasker, Alvin Plantinga. Man, I and I love playing like that. That, so. is, that is brutal. Uh, Richard Swinburne, who was actually the uh, advisor for Greg Welty, yeah. another name that we and they could not be farther apart on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, and R.T. Mullins. So that's the list there. <clears throat> if you just want to maybe jot those names down, if, um, maybe you've got a book on your shelf. Yeah, and I really guys. the point is, I think all those guys are doing really good analytic theology. It may not come to the conclusion that I think is right. But it's helpful and useful for thinking and making clear arguments and realizing what's true and what's false. So I think you should be reading the guys who are more unorthodox. I think you should. I think they make good arguments at times. And maybe, you know, they, they could point out, even if, even if the position that they're arguing against is the correct one, they may point out that your argument for that position is not a good one. And yeah. you need to drop it. So that's one advantage of reading somebody that... Uh, you disagree with it. We, we didn't co- cover earlier, I think. But all right. So <clears throat> before we land the plane here, um, we've been given a lot of positives um, about analytic theology, but we don't want to act like there are no drawbacks here. So, Jordan, give us some of the maybe the possible problems that come along with analytic theology. Yeah, I'm not going to expand on these much, but analytic theology does have a tendency to rely on acronyms way too much. So if you're not used to looking at rigorous philosophical arguments that are, you know, initials with numbers and stars and everything, it's going to be hard to follow at times. So I do think that's something that they could do better on. Not everyone does that, but some of them do it. And I think it's detrimental at times to the overall clarity, which is supposed to be the virtue of analytic theology. So it's kind of funny. Um, That said, another one might be the lack of historical grounding. So a lot of them, that are practicing it don't really tether their arguments to history, church history. That's not necessarily always true, but it's definitely something that is on the table and a danger for current analytic theology. Besides that, I mean, there might be others. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Those are the ones I wrote down because I think they're probably the most prevalent and maybe just because it's hard sometimes, but it doesn't have to be hard. Some people are going to just do it at a higher level than others. Yeah. And I mean, all of us are not meant to actually do this. Like, I want to go back to what I said earlier. For, for many of us, it's just more about reading analytic theology that we're going to get the big payoff because it's going to stretch us in ways that, that reading other kinds of literature are not going to stretch us. So, yeah, I, I don't expect everybody to start writing 20-page articles right, so and publishing yeah, I, I feel like some people think it's like an all or nothing. Like, yeah, I, well, I can't do that, so then why should I care? Well, even if you can't do it, you can read it. I mean, and it's going to take you a little bit of time to get used to reading that kind of article or that kind of book because it is different. You can read it. You can discuss it with friends. You can think about it. You can pray about it. You can do all sorts of things without actually like practicing it, I guess. Yeah. Well, hopefully we addressed uh, a good number of the questions that we got. Yeah, I think we did. 
maybe help people out um, on on understanding it. And, and and we're we're really looking forward to some of the analytic guys that we've got coming on the podcast up here in the coming weeks. Uh, I know Chris Wozniak is going to be next week. We've got two episodes with him. He's excellent at what he does. He's really clear. He's really helpful. He's a great example. And I know JT Turner is actually going to be on on the podcast coming up here soon. And he he's another wonderful example. So I'm excited for you guys to get exposed to them. We're really looking forward to you hearing from them. I'm looking forward to hearing from them. And I'm trying to think of a way to sign off this podcast better than I've done in the past. I know the, the, to give it up. the first time we recorded this, I'd said something along the lines of, you know, we don't always theologize, but when we do, we do it Baptistly. Stay thinking, my friends. But I hope that we're always thinking or always theologizing. So I don't feel like that's very good. But no, stay no. thinking, my friends, is pretty fair. I hope that's what you're doing, and I hope this podcast is encouraging it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.